after hour, on an August night in 1975, the more than 4,000 combined horsepower of the four radial engines had been carrying the DC-4 on its trip from Columbia, South America, to its unusual destination near Atlanta. Though the pilot, Bob Eby, was only 27 years old, he was totally confident in his ability, and with the landing he was about to make, he would need to be. Just months earlier, he had cobbled the DC-4 together from parts resting in an aircraft graveyard in Arizona, and had brought the old cargo plane back to life. Now, it was on its way to make a delivery of 7,000 pounds of marijuana to a crew of young smugglers waiting in the backwoods of Georgia. With the glow of the lights of Atlanta passing a scant 45 nautical miles off to the east, Bob Eby reduced power to set up for his landing. By the time the story of this flight had played out, Bob Eby and a host of others, including Marty Rollins, the young Atlantan who had put the deal together, would have been arrested and released. The airplane would become a tourist attraction and then become the star of one of the worst movies ever made. What would make this smuggling run so different? Creating local legend and earning the admiration of almost every pilot who hears the story? It's because in the dark of night, Bob Eby landed a DC-4 full of marijuana on a crude strip of just over a thousand feet, a strip that only days before had been carved out of the slope of a mountain. And he did such a good job, the DC-4 would be flown again out of that very strip. This is Episode 5 of Fly by Night, The Nearly Impossible Landing. Before pilots like Bob Eby could fly a shipment, someone had to put the deal together. Like any other business, an aerial smuggling run had to be funded, crews had to be hired, a schedule set, provisions made for the plane, and they needed a place to land at each end of the flight. In short, a plan required an organizational leader, a boss, if you will. For the smuggling run that came to be represented by what is called the pot plane of Polk County, that boss was Marty Rollins of Atlanta. If you wanted someone to play the role of Marty Rollins in a movie, you might as well just cast Marty himself. With his easygoing, laid-back demeanor and classic Southern drawl, Marty is the perfect representation of what you'd want in a middle-class drug smuggler of the 70s and 80s. Friendly, polite, well-mannered, and without a hint of dangerous criminal about him. Because there's so much more than can be shared of Marty's smuggling history and telling the story of the DC-4's remarkable landing and its aftermath, we'll learn more about how Rollins got into smuggling in an upcoming episode. But for now, Marty will help tell the story of his audacious plan to land a large cargo plane full of bells of marijuana on the side of a mountain. Before that August night, when Bobby B. somehow successfully landed the DC-4 in what can only charitably be called a landing strip, much less a true runway. Marty Rollins, along with some friends from Atlanta and Michigan, had been busy bringing pot into Georgia. After a brief run using boats into Florida and trucks from there, he moved on to planes. And when the business plan was hatched that later ended with the mountainside landing, Marty, his friend Mike, and the others needed a plane big enough to make it worth their while, especially if it turned out to be a one-way trip onto the mountain. That plane would be a DC-4 and the best place to get one was at Davis-Monthan Air Base in Arizona. To make that happen, Marty hired Bob Eby, a young pilot. Here's Marty Rollins with how that part of the story began. So we approached Bob, and he said, uh, 
told him we wanted to buy a big airplane. And uh, he says, well, I can go out uh, and put us one together out at, uh, you know, the, the graveyards out there in Tucson. And that's what he did. He went, uh, we gave Bob a bunch of money, and he went out there and bought the DC-4 and put it together for us. And I headed off to Columbia to go meet the contact. After building a relationship with suppliers in Columbia while E.B. was busy in Arizona, Marty's first plan was to have E.B. fly the first trip in the Skymaster into Florida with a cargo designed as mailbags. With the help of friends, Marty started to prepare the bags, going as far as stenciling fake Postal Service logos on them. They quickly abandoned that plan and decided to try the straightforward approach. And after dealing with some engine trouble in Puerto Rico, the first load with the DC-4 was successfully offloaded in Fort Lauderdale, but not without some drama. So we just went and landed right there in Fort Lauderdale and loaded. Then, we, you know, we came in and parked the airplane at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and then about 10 o'clock at night, we all went out there on the backside of the Fort Lauderdale airport and started unloading. And, and I saw over on the other side of the airport the uh, car lights come on and this car came over and sat in front of the airplane. We were all in the woods waiting to see what the, the security guy was going to do, and he just sat there for a little while and then uh, went back over on the other side of the airport, and we finished unloading and uh, bringing the pot back up to Atlanta and selling it here. And About that time, it was time to go again. With the Fort Lauderdale run behind them, Rollins and his partners wanted to shorten their drive with vehicles loaded with pot. Having the plane make a run all the way into the Atlanta area would speed up the transport and have the added benefit of reducing their exposure during the long drive. The DC-4 was capable of making the long run, so all they needed was the right place to land. They decided to take an unconventional approach to solve that problem. When Rollins needed a runway near Atlanta, he could have looked for a quiet country airport with a cooperative owner, but that wasn't his choice. Instead, he decided to build his own airstrip and called upon friends to help. And like I said, then we got together and said, well, uh, I spilled on an airstrip, and I had a, I happened to have a friend, that pretty wealthy guy, and was in real estate, and I went to him. I said, you got any land big enough for me to build an airstrip on here? I can land a DC-4 on. And he said, yeah, we got some out in Polk County. And I think they had bought that land out there in a, in a LLC situation because – at that time, there was talk about the second Atlanta airport going in out that way, so that was speculation land. So uh, I happened to have a, a, a girl, of, a girl I was going with at the time. She had a friend who's uh, was in the bulldozing business. His uncle had a business, and so I said, "You want to build an airstrip out here for me?" So they went out there and it took. They were out there, I guess, probably about three weeks. You know, building the airstrip, and I was out there and everything. And As Marty and his friends were finishing the airstrip on Treat Mountain, it was time for Bobby B. to come from Florida to determine if he could land the DC-4 under such challenging conditions. Marty recalls E.B.'s response and his suggestion on how to help him identify the end of the strip in the dark night. And then Bob came up, and he said, Yeah, that's fine. Ain't no problem. He says... See that tall tree down there at the end of the runway? He says, put up a guy, put a put a guy up in that daggum tree with a big light coming out of the top of that tree so I know where the, you know, where it, you know, the end of the runway starts. And so no problem. So we put a guy up in, in the tree and so let's review this part of the plan. Bobby B will be bringing a very large and very heavily loaded cargo plane in for a landing at midnight 
in the sparsely populated, hilly, and very dark countryside northwest of Atlanta. He'll be heading for what can barely be called a runway that will be lined on each side by the equivalent of Christmas tree lights powered by a portable generator. And to mark the end of the runway, he has asked for someone to climb a tree and use a bright light as a beacon. Marty Rollins picks up the story again, with the unfortunate result for the man in the tree. When Bob came in that night, he, he, he knocked the guy out of the tree and he caught the top of the, uh, the, that, that tree right there, and, uh, and then he landed. A trucker had seen the, the plane come by, and Bob had turned on his landing lights right before he landed. Now, what the hell did he need the guy in the tree for if he's going to turn his lights off? Well, I thought that defeated the purpose. So a trucker was coming by and saw it. And thought it was a crashed airplane, so uh, police were out looking for that. And as I was leaving, and Mike was following me in his truck, I was in my—I uh, had a show, brand new, a new Chevrolet Blazer. And uh, as I was leaving, Mike was following me. He he stopped where he was going to unload his pot, and I went on in and came to this little town, the next little town up there. And a, a police car was backing out of the police station. I stopped for the red light, and he just kind of rolled up next to me with his window down. Says, how about pulling in the police station over? And I said, well, what for? He said, well, I don't know. He says, somebody just called and told me to stop a red Chevrolet Blazer, and you're it. During the next hour, Marty waited to see if the other members of the crew had gotten away in their trucks filled with pot. But it wasn't long before the small town jail began to fill up with what would eventually be 14 people arrested, either that night or soon after. And though they wouldn't know it for a while, during what seemed to be a night of bad luck, Rollins and his crew would be gifted with a get-out-of-jail-free card in the form of a bad warrant. Before that happened, Rollins, his partners, and their crews would have the experience of a week-long stay in a small-town Georgia jail. So they took me into the police station, and I sat there, and about 30, 40 minutes later, the guy who was driving the truck came in. So we acted like we didn't know each other, and, uh, and then after the police had kind of gone out, it didn't look like anybody was in there listening to us. I asked him, I said, well, the truck's empty, right? And he said, nah, he says, and there's three other guys laying in the back of it. <laughs> they went and got a, a warrant for, uh, for moonshine. Well, this officer that pulled the truck over used as an excuse to get a warrant that he thought it was a moonshine operation. But he had no reason to believe there was a moonshine operation. So the, the search and seizure law is such you, the seizure is one thing and the search is another. He didn't have the right to seize it, so they didn't have the right to search it. So they call it the fruit of the poisonous tree. Everything came from that stop of that truck where uh, any evidence they found after that is all no good because it all has to be thrown out because everything revolved around the stopping of the truck. And it went back and forth for months and months. They, they, they knew they had a bad bust and everything. And the federal government knew it was real iffy, but it made so much publicity that they couldn't just ignore it, you know. And so the um, basically they just let it dive. With their good fortune of a bad warrant becoming their walking papers, Rollins and his partners had still paid a large price for their attempt to land their DC-4 on Treat Mountain. Not only was the plane and most of its load seized, they faced substantial legal fees, and now law enforcement would be keeping a close eye on them. But the story of the DC-4 itself, which had come to be known as the pot plane of Polk County, 
didn't end with it being abandoned in the Georgia Hill Country. Now, a new cast of characters would enter the life of the old Skymaster. And working together, they would use the plane to make one of the worst movies ever made. With Marty Rollins and most of the other smugglers arrested that night or soon after, their old Douglas Skymaster was seized by the government and appeared doomed to be abandoned until it was rescued by a local pilot with an ambitious plan to capitalize on the plane's newfound notoriety. It didn't take long for the abandoned DC-4 to become a local tourist attraction. For weeks, families and teenagers in search of a cheap date had made the drive out from Atlanta and nearby small towns to have their pictures taken with the notorious pot plane. Taking notice of the local fame of the plane, and never one to miss an opportunity to make a dollar, a lawyer who was also a Georgia state representative and a pilot named Jim West bought the DC-4 with $20,000. And with an ego sufficient enough to propel him to enter movie making, West and his almost all amateur crew made a full-length film called The Polk County Pot Plate, a strong contender for being one of the worst films in the history of bad films. Of course, Jim West didn't set out to craft a film with embarrassing production values, bad scripting, and amateurish acting. According to a report in the small-town paper of the area, West claimed he was making a film that would rival one of the biggest hits of the time, Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Though West was an active pilot, including owning and flying a helicopter, he knew that flying the DC-4 for the movie was beyond his abilities and experience. That's when Wes began to look for a well-experienced DC-4 pilot and found him in Jim Thurman, who had a DC-4 of his own that he was operating out of South Florida airports. Jim Thurman was flying cargo runs in the Caribbean and Central America and was willing to travel to Atlanta to meet Wes and decide if both he and the stranded pot plane would survive an attempt to fly it off the mountainside strip. After deciding to attempt to take off, Thurman returned to Florida to prepare for the move to Georgia. With the optimism of a young pilot, Jim Thurman loaded his own DC-4 with his household goods and even a Honda Civic he planned to drive around Atlanta. Arriving in Georgia, and with the help of people from the film crew, he pushed the Civic out of his DC-4 onto the top of a van owned by one of the actors in the film. Then they drove it to an embankment, and with some boards to make a wrap, drove the Civic off the van. The point of telling this little story It's to illustrate what some may describe as the hey y'all watch this atmosphere of the production of the film. Or more charitably, you could call it the can-do attitude of everyone involved. Jim Thurman picks up the story with his memory of flying over Treat Mountain with Jim West and his helicopter for a look at the challenge ahead. Uh, I forgot exactly what the day was or how we did it, but got in his helicopter and went up to uh, see the airplane. And I looked it over and you know, no, didn't start at anything. I just looked to see what was there and what the strip was like. Uh, he had some good traits, you know, because it could be said of me the same thing, you know. But old Jim was a hooker and crooker and tried to beat you out anything he could. And he, you ain't going to fly this thing. I said, man, don't you start that because I am going to fly it off if it works. Change the spark plugs and um, uh, check the fuel on it. Well, I did it with a stick. You see how much fuel was in it, when, and we pulled it down to like a level place and uh, a bunch of other work on it. 
I told him, I said, you need to get your cameras ready and have these guys. He said, they cost a lot of money. You know that. And I said, well, I don't. He said, well, you tell me when you're going to go. I said, when it gets, when this thing runs up and the RPM had dropped, oil pressure, all the parameters for the engines are good. And uh, I see that the cow flaps will trail and that the flaps will go to the position I want to again. I mean, in other words, we're going to do all the che- all the checklists, all the walk around and uh, uh, pre-flight it. We're going to do the before uh, before taxi, before takeoff. We're going to do all these checklists, just like we were professional pilots. We're going to jump in here and just go. No, we're not going to do that. To simulate flying the DC-4 off of Treat Mountain, Thurman had performed practice runs in his own plane, trying different configurations of flaps and weights, pushing the plane to its maximum performance at high power settings and low airspeeds. All of this as a rehearsal for the moment of truth. The moment when Thurman would sit in the cockpit of a plane he had never flown before and stare at a short dirt strip and the tall pine trees ahead. You know, did some short field work with it as far as landings are concerned. On pavement, I could get it stopped in less than a thousand feet. That's really hanging it. And uh, later on, I flew one into a dirt field and stopped in less than 800 feet. After deciding that the takeoff could be made, Thurman and West waited for the right conditions. And when that day came with lower temperatures and favorable winds, he was ready to go. In preparation for the takeoff attempt and knowing that the footage would be valuable for his film, Jim West had a camera crew on call. And Thurman informed him that now was the time, giving West just 30 minutes to get the crew ready. And we were up there one day, it hit 52 degrees, about 50 degrees, and uh, wind's blowing in my, right down the runway about five or six knots. And I said, where's your cameras? He said, I'd go get them. I said, well, I'm leaving within, within I'm going to give you 30 minutes, and I'm leaving. I decided to make the takeoff, and he's, he got in a helicopter and left. Knew what, he knew, I told him I may stop at Bear Creek, so anyway... The three of us, Bobby Watson, Charlie Stallnaker, and myself, uh, were in the airplane when I took it off. And uh, uh, it, it's kind of on a little bit of an uphill area. It started down to the left and, you know, bouncing on that hard ground. Like, and it felt like it was on, like it felt, it feels like lead when you see something out there at 13, 1400 feet in front of you that's tall, like a pine tree or something, a bunch of trees. You know, they, you start thinking, you know, all this stuff I've done to make myself secure in the knowledge that it will do what it's going to do. Uh, you kind of go out, it kind of goes out the window. I don't know where you get a high or whatever. You just kind of in a state of, uh, and I, don't, I wouldn't call it animation. But anyway, <clears throat> got off and flew down to Bear Creek and landed there. And uh, from there, Jim started his movie. Now, if they'd have had some real direction, they'd have made a real good movie, but they made a, a, a terrible, terrible piece of film. Perhaps the best way to describe the film, both known as the pot plane of Polk County and In Hot Pursuit, is that it's an extremely low-budget attempt to mirror car chase films of that time like Smokey and the Bandit, which Thurman recalls was actually shooting some scenes in the same area at around the same time. Once the big Douglas Skymaster was off the mountain, the decision was made to shoot the landing and other scenes at an area airport that could more safely fill in for the dangerous strip at Treat Mountain. To get one of the action shots Jim West wanted, 
Thurman was asked to drag a wingtip through the top of pine trees while on short final. And as with most movie making, the director wanted a number of takes, each time asking for more branches of the trees to be knocked off. For Thurman, that meant successive runs at higher speeds each time. So we decided to film some of the stuff and had a camera sitting in the middle of the runway. This guy's down there with it. I, I was going around. They wanted the trees to explode, right? So I said, all right. So I'm slowing up to about 60 and coming in over the fence and it just plopping down, right? I mean, it just, you got to be, when you take the power off it, you better be close to the ground. In other words, it's coming down. So I come in there the first time. And they uh, said, well, just the gear seems to have hit the trees. We didn't see anything. Small pine trees. So the next time around, I hit a few. You could see it. I said, you know, and they said, well, I still probably didn't see much. I said, well, let me tell you what. You'll see something this next time. So I goose that baby up to about 80 knots, 80, 85 knots. Now, I'm going to tell you something. There's a total world of difference in energy stored in that airplane and objects it hits, a whole world of difference between 65 knots and 85 knots. I mean, you talk about exponential, you better go see what squares and cubes are and understand what that means because you fix to be in that world. Uh, I hit those trees, and it sounded like rifles going off even up in the cockpit. And I got on the ground, and the whole, left, the whole right wing tip it's just sheared off, but it, it was sheared off far enough out that you could unbolt it and put another one on. We had to go get it wingtip, but it was straw stuck in the in the front of the wings, went through the aluminum, and, and, and some straw tuck, stuck in the tire. I mean, it was just stuck in it. It wasn't bashed up against anything. It was some green streaks, but stuff was stuck through this stuff. I was like, good grief. And a little stick, a little stick that big before we'd hit them, and they'd just smash and make a green spot, right? Shoot, that thing just, a couple of places it cut, cut a cut a piece off the bottom of the uh, gear door, just like you took a knife and just sliced it off. Just a little bitty piece. You could tell what it was because there's pieces of the bark on up the top of it. Whoa. The fact that no one died during the filming of Jim West's movie, now to be seen on YouTube as In Hot Pursuit, is a tribute to good flying by Thurman and to great luck in the case of the numerous car crashes sprinkled throughout the movie. Almost all performed by local amateurs. The car and truck stunts included the shearing off of the top of a car passing underneath the trailer of a truck, while the driver is protected only by a football helmet while bending over as low as possible in the seat. And then there's the escape of the drug smuggler prisoners from the roof of a county jail, filmed at the actual county jail, when a helicopter hovers feet over the roof and four men get into and onto the helicopter, with two simply crooking their arms around the skids all without a single safety harness as the helicopter flies away. Over the years, the film has occasionally been shown in a local theater, offering a way for the area population to relive the glory days of the pot plain of Polk County. Jim West and a number of others involved with the film has since passed away. Pilot Jim Thurman has retired to a far more quiet life and is no longer active as a pilot. And the flying star of the movie, the old DC-4, now sits in a museum out west painted in the colors of the Military Airlift Command. Former smuggler Marty Rollins still lives in Atlanta, and you'll hear more about how he got into the business 
built his own runway in Columbia, South America, and how he used airplanes to build his organization. That's coming up in Episode 6 of Fly By Night. Fly By Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson with additional music by Ave Stites. Show art is by Aini with additional design by Ave Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Ave Stites and additional audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. For photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.